today's uh, training is called Moral Agency and Homeless Engagement. Uh, my name is Matthew McCoy. Um, I'm trained as a medical anthropologist and um, I'll be having a co-presenter, uh, Dr. Nimi Myers, who's also an anthropologist. She'll be coming in uh, a, little, a little later in the presentation uh, to present uh, as well. Um, our moderator today is uh, Chelsea uh, Sims and uh, other anthropologists uh, um, uh, and psychiatrists that contributed to the uh, information today include uh, Elizabeth Bromley, uh, Michael Darcy, Vincent Lavierta, and um, Marissa Burwald. So, um, today we want to ask, you know, how our work uh, um, uh, uh, today, inspired by anthropological theory and methods, can inform a recovery-oriented approach to clients experiencing homelessness. So things we're going to be talking about today are going to hopefully deepen uh, our ability to think through a recovery, orient recovery orientation in, in our work. Uh, so again, a recovery approach's goal is to assist persons living with mental illness to lead self-identified enriched lives. And there's a belief that persons living with mental illness want and deserve more than symptom relief, stabilization, medication, supervision, and treatment. And one key distinction that is important when talking about uh, recovery is an illness-centered versus a person-centered approach. I'm not going to read each element, but the key idea is that a person-centered approach uh, is really built uh, um, with this idea that the relationship um, uh, is, is a foundation um, compared to sort of focusing on um, the illness and the diagnosis and sort of um, uh, services ending when the illness is cured. So really focusing on the uniqueness uh, and understanding uh, the person um, and the person as entwined in, in relationships uh, as well. Um, and again, uh, another really important point, relationships may change and grow and even continue after services end. So um, our, our team of anthropological field workers, and I'll get a little bit into the discipline of anthropology in a moment, um, uh, researched homeless engagement uh, um, context across North America that we're going to be speaking about today. We spoke, our team of field workers uh, spoke to providers and individuals experiencing homelessness with the goal of learning new lessons about care. We distilled important ideas from each context to deepen our understanding of how care for homeless clients uh, um, uh, exists in a wide, wide a wide array of communities. Um, some guiding questions um, that we want to think about today. How do certain contexts expect people to show that they are worthy of care? How do so, and how do some providers and organizations offer alternative expectations and understandings of care? So today's training is, is in part an exercise of translating knowledge uh, across disciplines. Um, um, uh, specifically from anthropology to uh, outreach workers and to other, um, you know, to other spheres. Some expectations and ideas about clients may sound strange or uncomfortable to us. Uh, we'll encounter um, ideas like friendship or touch, intimacy, and worthiness. While other ideas from these various contexts may strike us as common sense, 
So what we always want to try to do is track the way we're responding to these different approaches and these different contexts. And the idea is that learning from different contexts, uh, even strange or uncomfortable ideas, may allow us to see connections or disconnections with our own work. We're not necessarily trying to show success stories today, though successes may occur, or trying to understand stigma, though stigma may occur. But we are paying attention to whether there's a difference between what a certain services site says they want to provide and the services they also uh, actually do provide. Now, uh, I, as I said, I come to you as an anthropologist and our team of field workers that helped gather the data for this presentation. Uh, it's a, a distinctively qualitative research approach. So when we go into um, various uh, contexts of homeless engagement, um, there are sort of three kind of uh, methodological tools that we, we use to approach uh, people when we wanna understand uh, the kind of care, how they understand care, how they understand the situation they find themselves in. First is, uh, as an anthropologist, sort of suspend your judgment and listen uh, to the stories and ideas um, of uh, others in these contexts. You learn from others, um, treat them as, as experts in their own life. So you see from the quote unquote insider's point of view. Um, and ultimately, the idea is to develop a deeper understanding of what matters for others in these contexts. This is sort of the tried and true anthropological approach. Now, there are um, five contexts we're going to go over today for, uh, that each have a different understanding of, of um, homeless engagement. Uh, first, outreach teams from Los Angeles. Um, uh, the second is uh, the Progress Foundation in San Francisco. The third is the Winter Refuge from Hollywood, California. Uh, the fourth is the Judge Emmett Diversion Center in Houston, Texas. And finally, PRISM from Montreal, Canada. Now, sort of the overarching uh, concept we're going to be looking at in these different um, in these different contexts is uh, what we're calling moral agency. So for each context, we see how people become moral agents. And moral agency, um, as, as differentially constructed in these contexts, means that sometimes people are seen to be good. And I put that in, in, in scare quotes in certain ways. Um, and moral agency um, uh, makes possible certain relationships and resources, and sometimes moral agency can be undermined. And we'll see that in a couple of cases. Now, there are three elements to what it means to be a moral agent. Um, uh, it means first and foremost to have autobiographical power where you get to be the playwright of your own story. The second sort of pillar of, of moral agency is the social basis of self-respect. And that's where you have a receptive audience that listens, laughs, and applauds at the right time. And it's a sort of a dramaturgical or performance uh, idea. Um, and third, you have people opportunities. That means you can enact your role or your story with other supportive actors from your theater troupe, again, sticking with that metaphor. And so these are, again, the three elements of moral agency that we're going to look at in various contexts today. Now, opportunities for moral agency can vary based on social context. Um, it can differ for a, a client on the street, what it means to have autobiographical power or social basis of uh, self-respect. Um, it can differ when then when you transfer into an institution or then 
when you're a moral agent in broader society and we'll sort of track these uh, different uh, areas today. And so the question is, how do we advance moral agency for clients? So in what scenarios do your clients gain or have autobiographical power? What factors diminish their ability to be the playwrights of their own life? The, in what situations can your clients find receptive audiences and when do they find, fail to find that? And how do your clients develop enduring and meaningful social ties? Um, uh, and what makes it hard for clients to participate with others in a shared project that reinforce uh, their role and their ideas about themselves? Okay, so, um, you know, anthropologists have long studied, uh, you know, different contexts and different institutions. Um, and uh, we've studied social services and, and uh, you know, all sorts of uh, sites that promote social belonging. So community groups, places of worships, marriages and partnerships, office mates, relationships with landlords and employees. Um, these opportunities can, uh, uh, for creating social belonging can be seriously limited for people with psychiatric disabilities. Um, it's really hard to do without some moral agency that again, that sort of freedom to uh, draft uh, your own life and have the social support behind you. Um, a lot of people uh, we find um, uh, uh, have had their moral agency depleted with experiences with mental illness already. And, and often um, that this can be um, really problematic, uh, especially when you're trying to uh, you know, when you're, 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 you're existing with this almost discredited identity. So three takeaways from today's training. Um, a client's recovery requires moral agency. Uh, homeless service settings can promote or diminish a client's moral agency. And outreach workers also need to experience their own moral agency to thrive in their own work. And that uh, begins uh, our first context today um, uh, that our team worked, um, did some interviews with some LA uh, outreach teams. And, and so uh, moral agency among outreach workers. So there was this sense um, with working with outreach workers in LA um, that cultivating an outreach identity means doing whatever it takes. So in a context of few resources, practices develop around maintaining face, continual engagement, and preventing what are called engagement killers with, bad, uh, with, with clients. So the idea is um, uh, preventing bad interactions or, or 5150s, um, uh, psychiatric holds. So there's a double bind of being a housing star, so that's an expectation, but with few resources, there's an inability to house clients, and that can isolate, frustrate, or perpetuate a lack of support from others for outreach workers. So an, outreach, an ideal outreach identity is, uh, um, again, doing whatever it takes, and this is a quote from one of our um, yeah, participants. Uh, in our contract from DHS, it actually says we will do whatever it takes. So I remind my team constantly that we don't give up because we do whatever it takes. So we usually don't walk away from the person. 
But in, in, again, in order to maintain face, um, uh, you have to engage then with these long engagements. So we consider folks to be long engagements. So we will continue to keep them on our radar and try different approaches. So there's a moral agreement between uh, outreach and clients uh, um, to engage in this sort of a long, uh, long engagement. But then again, there's this worry about engagement killers we found. Um, at 5150, we see them like as an engagement killer, essentially. It kind of ends engagement before it even starts. So engagement killers can erode, again, what we're talking about, that social basis of self-respect. And then there's the locus of responsibility. When he's back on the streets, we'll engage him, and then he'll ask us what we're doing with this housing. It's almost like he forgets that we had housed him, or he doesn't consider it uh, it's like true housing. He puts the responsibility back on us. So when housing services or other uh, things don't work out, clients may face uh, or may place the locus of responsibility back onto the team, creating sort of uh, um, uh, fraught tension. Uh, maybe again, that erosion of that social, social basis of respect that you've built with the client. So that creates uh, um, a double bind. Um, one of, uh, one of the participants said, I'm not the most productive person in the history of outreach. I'm probably only permanently housed maybe eight or nine people in almost two years I've been working, so I'm not, not like a star. I wish I could get more people housed. So in addition to long engagements, being a good outreach worker in this context means being a housing star in a context with few housing resources. And some uh, people may feel like a, it's been a personal failing not to house clients, even in a system with few resources, uh, as this uh, person um, indicated. So you may feel like there's a lack of support or opportunities to flourish, to uh, in this housing star role. So you could feel that your moral agency, your ability to sort of write your own story uh, is diminished. So that brings us to our first sort of round of discussion uh, questions. And there may have been some questions in chat. Um, and we don't have to take these discussion questions uh, um, each one and, and respond to them, but we can uh, think think through whichever ones pique our interest. How do we understand our roles and our activities as an outreach worker? What are some engagement killers that make you feel nervous? Or, um, and how do, your, uh, how do you feel your clients respond to your outreach work? And how do you feel other outreach workers respond to your work? That is, do you feel like there's that social basis of self-respect um, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and a willing audience? And so taking us just a little bit farther away uh, from, um, from LA, going to uh, our next context that we uh, uh, that our anthropologists research in is uh, up in the Bay Area in San Francisco with the Progress Foundation. So let me tell you a little bit about the Progress Foundation. It's a private uh, foundation with a commitment to um, non-hierarchical organization. So homeless clients that, um, uh, that enroll with the Progress Foundation move through three programs, acute diversion unit, transitional housing and substance help uh, and or substance help, but, and then long-term communal housing. Now, um, importantly for the Progress Foundation, you can move between these three programs. There's no sort of linear trajectory here. Um, 
it's guided by uh, uh, this sense of pragmatism. So it was founded with a revolutionary ethos, but it has worked with California's uh, health system for over 50 years. It accepts Medi-Cal to serve the region's most at-risk uh, citizens. Um, and sort of the uh, sort of a, a, a pithy quote from one of the participants who's interviewed said it's a quotidian day-by-day -day revolution that they're trying, ethos that they're trying to um, cultivate. Um, there's a, a, so a key um, sort of concept that comes out of this Progress Foundation is, is, is a recognition of what is called precarity. Um, and precarity is a structural state of persistent uh, insecurity and uncertainty. Um, and, uh, the idea that there are structural issues that are felt in the everyday quotidian levels. And so the Progress Foundation understands that its clients' personal crises are entangled in broader social crisis in public mental health in California. And of course, all of this is further complicated by a particular context, the crisis in public, house, uh, in public housing that has long plagued the Bay Area, especially for citizens of color. Um, so the Progress Foundation seeks to address the nested crises of access to care and housing by providing uh, this content, uh, continuum of care. It does so by fostering community, a sense of mutual recognition between staff, clients, and producing an environment defined by a sense of agency and voluntary participation. And you could even see with that you can move, you don't have to move in a sort of a linear trajectory through, uh, through this, uh, pro their programs. Ultimately, they view themselves as treating alienation, um, which was a, a, a strong, uh, a powerful quote from, from our interviews. Uh, the executive director said community mental health should have started with affordable housing and ended with hospital beds, but we did the opposite. The system has failed to understand that we need to disinvest from the hospital model and focus on the community. So philosophically, the Progress Foundation is inspired by the, the, the Bazoglian model of deinstitutionalization, making a safe space uh, for people who need it. How do you do it? How do you do this? Well, they believe that you prioritize relationships with staff and clients are based on dignity and respect. Um, another part of the ethos that we discovered from the Progress Foundation is that the client is the expert of their own life and we learn how to help the client from the client. So again, this, uh, uh, this would definitely be a much more person-centered a model of, of, of care. And they are, um, um, they advocate sort of against what they call a biomedical model that focuses again on the physical or biological aspects of disease and illness. They emphasize uh, um, a, a biomedical model that uh, emphasizes often diagnoses and treatment. They emphasize uh, an emphasis on a healthy body outside of its social um, and structural context. It's physician-centered instead, again, instead of person-centered. The patient in this model that, uh, that they're opposing is often a passive, passive observer of their own care instead of uh, giving input into their care. Um, and again, uh, Progress Foundation um, uh, wants to evoke an ethos 
um, against or that you know that considers historical and structural inequities. So um, the biomedical model they're sort of working against doesn't uh, consider consider these. So thinking in terms of the, of the Progress Foundation, um, how do we see alienation in our own work? Um, do we see clients as the experts of their own life? Um, and in what circumstances might this uh, be difficult? Um, and what might it mean to prioritize a relationship based on dignity and respect in the context of your own work? So again, an open forum, any of these questions or any other questions that you may have uh, to sort of think through, you know, this, this other context. Some comments from last time I thought I'd highlight though. Oh, sure. Um, I agree. I try to be as honest as possible without being discouraging. Just, you know, just to, uh, you know, ask maybe a sort of the first question, how you see alienation or in our own work. So, you know, the Progress Foundation takes uh, sort of, you know, uh, an understanding of systemic racism, systemic, systemic inequities, um, um, economic disparities. Um, you know, how, you know, how is it that we might uh, see that in our own work in Los Angeles, uh, that, that sense of alienation, not just, you know, on an individual level, but sort of societal issues. All right. Matthew, um, there's a comment yeah. in the chat too. Okay. Um, yeah who says listening to their experiences from their past often as indicators of their limits and boundaries when finding and accessing certain housing placements. In addition, it is difficult when they don't realize their role in getting housing, i.e. participation and cooperation with the process. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really great point. The idea of not even knowing one's role or what the boundaries of one's role, and that really fits into our theme today. If you don't have knowledge of what you can and cannot do, it, it can create that sort of confusion. So that's a great, great point. Um, okay, moving on now to our um, our next uh, context, um, which is really, really sort of interesting context called the Winter Refuge. Some of you may or may not be familiar. Um, the Winter Refuge opened in Hollywood in 2010 for people uh, dying on the street. It's a Presbyterian church space offering shelter for 10 weeks. Uh, it's soon to be open year round from what I understand. Um, now workers draw from their own religious ethos and convictions, but they do not proselytize. They, um, uh, one of the uh, workers uh, at the Winter Refuge said, the spirit is communal rather than programmatic. So let's, let's look into how they think uh, about um, about homeless uh, engagement because uh, it, it is rather unique and, and something we can perhaps learn from. So they think of moral agency through friendship. Now friendship is a is um, is a, a local idea, a, a contextual idea and we'll unpack what, what friendship means uh, in this context. But it has three main components, adoration, touch, and what is called loving redirection. So let's begin with the first engagement with friends. So there's no barriers to admit admittance at the Winter Refuge. Um, uh, all clients are considered friends. And what that means is that you're accepted, worthy, 
and meant to receive care the moment you walk through the door, even the moment before you came through the door. And here's some quotes from, from some workers. There's no barrier and there's no paperwork. The first engagement is not in the context of a program or staff person. Here's a list of to, uh, do's and don'ts. You have to sign this. You walk in places and there's 90 pieces of paper. So when service providers were interviewed about the refuge, they asked, what do you like about it? And they responded, no paperwork, no nothing literally. And, and another a quote, oftentimes we'll get a description that is pretty daunting. They'll say, I have a lovely woman who's just a hat, who's had six hospitalizations in the last six months. And she just hit a guard at the shelter where she is now and she is kicked out. Will you take her? And I believe they're meant to have these resources. That is the clients. And the response comes out of how I actually view who they are. That is, and they're accepted. And so a key part of friendship uh, a key part of, of being a friend is a broadened acceptance for those who have burned bridges elsewhere. And uh, here's another quote, but our experience to broaden our acceptance of what we might hear in the symptoms, the backstory of who might be coming in, and even people who have obviously been violent. So that's the light we see it in. We've had people with severe schizophrenia or cognitive issues who don't know their name. Again, this idea of of the friend, what friendship means in this context is, is a broadening, not a limiting, a broadening out uh, to include uh, those who may uh, not seem uh, like friends or, or people um, who, you know, uh, basically people who burn bridges elsewhere, right? So uh, one key aspect, again, of being a friend is adoration. So uh, the workers um, at the Raider Re Refuge described themselves as being outside themselves. They were ecstatic in adoration for the moral worth of the person that they already belonged. And they said that this was a natural affirmation for them. They felt this naturally for, them, for their clients, that each person is special. And they greet, um, they feel uh, this a need to greet everyone who walks that door with joy, excitement, and interest. Uh, and here's how, sort of what this looks like. As I see them, I'm just radiant. I'm ecstatic, ecstatic that you're here. Then the natural affirmations and adoration comes out. Adoration is a good word because it is really like, it is um, truly this profound experience. Like each person is so special that you naturally radiate, radiate this joy, like I'm excited to see you and what happened today. Now, another pillar of friendship is what is called touch. Now, touch can be hugging or holding hands during good times or, or bad times, or if a person doesn't want to be touched, giving uh, what are called loving objects to reinforce an affectionate um, 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 dynamic, an interpersonal or relationship dynamic. Uh, also co-touching co the stuffed animal to relearn nurture, nurture or to distract from a heightened psychotic episodes. The idea is uh, sometimes it's a way to redirect unpleasant experiences. When people are, and here's a quote from one of the workers, when people are upset, there are ways to appropriately calm them down by touch or friends do well with stuffed animals if they're having a psychotic break. Sometimes you can pull out Winnie the Pooh and say, here's Winnie, and sort of distract them. It's a very nurturing and affectionate dynamic. It's very uh, adoring and uplifting. That brings us to sort of that 
other pillar uh, of, of what is called friendship in this context. And it's called loving redirection, also adjusting together. So again, uh, we're thinking in terms of a relationship. So a moral agency can emerge between people in the relationship itself, how we relate together to the situation. Um, so using affirmation, again, to redirect tension and negativity. And here's a sort of an example of how um, what they call loving redirection might work. So there was this client called himself trash. I'm trash. I'm trash. And he always had this t-shirt and he had like the F word or something on the t-shirt. And by the end, he actually put on our t-shirt, the winter refuge t-shirt, and I nearly fainted. And every time I would see him, I'd say, I'm so happy to see you. And he couldn't help but laugh. It's often that type of thing where it's love, but we have to try to adjust and we adjust together, right? So Winter Refuge is a very sort of unique uh, context um, in the way that they conceptualize and think about um, um, their clients. So I'm just interested, you know, to sort of take a pause here to see what are some initial reactions you have to hearing how the Winter Refuge treats their friends. Now we understand how they understand the word friends. Did any of the practice seem did any of these practices seem like something we already do? Why or why, why not? And what things about this approach might work outside of this church or this religious sort of ethos um, uh, or and what things may not work? So I'm interested in hearing if, if anyone had any reactions to this, uh, to this um, uh, context. There was a comment, another comment yeah. in the chat. Yeah. I want you to uh, hear this one. Yeah. Um, I enjoy the practices. I think they are a very humanistic approach. In theory, these approaches should help increase rapport and trust throughout the process. Yeah, I think that's right. Thank you for sharing. We were going to have another co-presenter today, but uh, I think she might be running behind. So I'll, I'll present uh, her, to the best of my ability, her, her context. So um, uh, um, Neely Myers is a, Dr. Neely Myers is an anthropologist who helped put together today's presentation. And she, this is uh, her book, Recovery's Edge, an Ethnography of Mental Health and Moral Agency. And we're really drawing from Neely's ideas on moral agency today. Um, um, to think through uh, all these various contexts and to think through our own work. And so again, moral agency is ability to act in a way that makes possible intimate connections to others when they recognize you as a moral agent. Uh, and sort of the idea is that moral agency can be a driver of mental health recovery. Now, Neatley's context was in um, Houston, Texas at the Judge Emmett uh, Diversion Center or the GEEDC. Um, and this is a pre-charge alternative for law enforcement to drop off people with mental illnesses picked up for low-level misdemeanors. So uh, a client would no longer face any charges and can choose to stay or leave this center. If they choose to say, stay, they are diverted from jail to wraparound services, and that includes temporary housing, so single rooms or mm -hmm. a private bathroom where they could stay indefinitely, mental health services, primarily primary healthcare services and so on. Now, I'm bringing this slide back because we're gonna see how opportunities for moral agency sort of vary in, in three different social contexts in, in particular in this, in this part of our presentation. 
Um, here's some pictures of, of, of uh, the center, um, the outside, the, the single room, uh, sort of a processing area. So one thing we want to sort of think about is how moral agency uh, uh, begins uh, uh, on the street and then it moves into sort of that institutional. So on the street, you have what we talked about earlier, the autobiographical power being that sort of playwright of our own lives. I can go he over here, I can go get my breakfast. Okay, I can go to a food pantry, right? Um, there's a social basis of self-respect. So, right, I can get my clothes over there. I can get food over here. I can get drinks um, uh, over here. I have all these places that I can go, okay? And I can get my needs met, including my dope, okay? I get all my, the liquor stores over here. And then there's these, again, the, uh, the third pillar, these peopled uh, opportunities. Um, if I clean up a parking lot over here, I can get a pint. Now, you know, this sort of uh, uh, um, ability to craft one's own narrative or an own role and have other people uh, respecting that role and, and, and having that, you know, these relationships that you build on the street uh, is, is going to be different when you then move to the center. So, um, and the staff here sort of recognize that and they try to rebuild these people to opportunities within the context of this center. And, and here are some quotes I'll read. We've had people that have been on the streets and since they were kiddos and now they're adults. That's all they know. So that, that's their safety, that's their family, that's how they survive. The staff again try to rebuild the social bases of self-respect in the center. And so being here is like a fish out of water. It is. To us, it's nice. We're going to feed you and wash your clothes and make sure you have toothpaste and just those little things that they didn't have out there or, or they're used to kind of struggling. But again, at first, you know, despite, you know, washing clothes and toothpaste and these little things, the client has good reason to question whether they have the sense of agency or autobiographical power, this sort of freedom or a certain kind of freedom that um, in the center. So uh, here's a, another quote, they don't trust you. They have no idea what it's a, that's about. Um, they've been nothing but uh, abused out where they've been and I'm being kind to them. They know they don't know anything about kindness. And then so there's this uh, person-centered slow engagement that helps to rebuild uh, a social agency as understood again from the perspective of the center. Even this quote that they don't know anything about kindness is again from the perspective of a different context from the perspective of a, of a worker at the center. So here's uh, how a slow engagement helps to rebuild a social agency in this center. We had a guy that was like turning 30. We got cupcakes for him for his birthday, just a regular cupcake. Um, he had never experienced that. He was so touched and it was because he was a rugged guy and on that cupcake meant everything to him. But that's the engagement piece. Engagement comes in so many ways. So what's happening when you're working on engagement in this, in this context? Well, again, like we've been talking about, uh, you're, you're uh, building, and thinking about autobiographical power, not in, uh, um, in the sense of, of working towards a new sort of autobiographical power, not on the street, but in the center and eventually uh, outside of the center. 
rebuilding a social basis of self-respect and, and, and then rebuilding those people to opportunities. Um, so engagement in, in this context is a process of trying to rebuild these pillars of moral agency. And key sort of technique uh, is what is called slow engagement in this context. Um, and here's a, here's a moment of, of trying to rebuild this moral agency through this autobiographical power. So clients stay sometimes because the right staff member talked to them at the right time. And peer specialists were often the first people to meet a client and also describe ongoing micro engagements. I try to get, them, uh, get to them on their level, play dominoes and crack jokes, lift them up, pull them to the side. Hey, you need to talk. What's going on? And another, in, uh, in, in another example, engagement can happen the whole time, small little things, just like respect. So again, rebuilding this uh, idea of moral agency outside of the street, because the, what, what matters on the street is, um, uh, is different than what matters in the center and, then, and beyond. So uh, ultimately uh, for this diversion center, it's a rediscovering uh, autobiographical power, um, and uh, and some of the questions that um, that come from this, or that um, workers at the at this context ask themselves: What does it look like when clients again are the playwrights of their own lives outside of the street, um, and what shifts um, about their autobiographical power when they go into institutions and programs, and being able to attend to that. One can have, uh, uh, as we evinced in a couple of earlier slides, can have a sense of uh, moral agency on the street and have a sense of that autobiographical power. So you need to be aware that they could be very much the playwrights of their own lives in a different context. So when they go to the center, being aware of that, when you sort of rebuild or, or rediscover new aspects of that, of that um, uh, autobiographical power. So this, this is sort of the ethos of this diversion center. Um, and that moves us uh, to, again to some discussions, um, thinking in terms of this rebuilding or, or enhancing or expanding of autobiographical power and the switch from the streets to um, a center or an institution? How would you explore with their clients uh, how their ability to opt in or opt out of a diversion is an opportunity to edit or expand their story? In what kind of instances would engagement be successful even if it didn't lead to housing? And what do you do to enhance autobiographical power when your clients are impacted by the rules and the constraints of the settings they find themselves uh, in? And also that is to you know, um, you know, is there any wiggle room there that you sort of find for your clients? So I wonder if any of you do have that experience of, of clients, um, you know, when, maybe when they're housed or they go to an uh, uh, institution where they feel like they don't have the same freedoms that, like they would have on the streets or their, their story and their identity is edited in ways that they prefer not to. Uh, have had done to them. If that if that's a common occurrence, that might come up. To our final um, our final context today, which takes us to Canada, uh, to Prism. So this is a this uh, this is the farthest uh, geographically uh, that we're going today, and, and Prism is a is a unique 
context. It's a facility located inside of a homeless shelter um, in Montreal, Canada. Uh, there are three um, operating prisms in, in, in Montreal. Um, uh, and PRISM has a welcome hall mission shelter with eight beds um, and patients stay for about two to three months. Uh, the team, uh, the PRISM team is made up of, uh, uh, PRISM team is made up of four people, a psychiatrist, a nurse part-time, a psychoeducator, and a shelter intervention worker who's also full-time. Um, it serves individuals who are experiencing homelessness and severe mental illness and who are currently disconnected from uh, the service offer in Montreal. Disconnected is going to be a sort of a key word here uh, um, uh, moving forward because this um, uh, sort of the goals of PRISM are to reconnect in a social way these clients to the larger society. So to be a moral agent, to have moral agency um, from sort of the prism point of view is to becoming Quebecois. So through this continuity of care that we're gonna talk about, individuals in prism get reconnected to Quebecois society. Connections are seen as necessary for living a good life. And moral agency, the three pillars we've been talking about, if you succeed at sort of cultivating that is really for the sake of living a good life within that context. And so when, uh, when PRISM talks about connections, it's connection to healthcare resources, connections to fin financial resources and connections to housing resources, finding a new apartment. PRISM is also the space of transition for those who have never been part of Quebecois society, uh, that is immigrants uh, um, who to become a whole member of society. So uh, this is also a really important concept, becoming whole again. To become whole is to become a member of this Quebecois society. So when we talk about continuity of care in, in this Canadian um, Quebecois context, it's a systems-based approach to connect disaffiliated homeless mentally ill client, clients to a variety of state level bureaucracies, mental health and healthcare services, and social supports, which include adequate and stable housing in order to reaffiliate them into a social safety net. So the idea, sort of the impetus is to make sure that they're part of the social safety net and get, as, get them as quickly uh, um, uh, moved into that as, as possible. So taking the time to connect individuals to resources that will assist them in maintaining stability and independence outside of the program. And again, creating the conditions for individuals to achieve mental stability, which allows them to respond to psychic and emotional challenges uh, they face after le leaving this PRISM program. And here's a case study that one of our anthropologists sort of followed. Um, uh, the guy we're calling Jacques. So he was a man experiencing homelessness in his early 50s. Uh, he was a drug dealer for most of his life. Uh, Ten years ago, he was beaten unconscious by a street gang. Um, he was experiencing critical residential instability. So he was moving, he moved in and out 10 different apartments. And he was being harassed by voices coming from what he called the beings. He ended up chronically homeless dragging a grocery cart in the streets downtown, talking to himself and yelling insults. And he was frequently intercepted by the police. And so PRISM um, 
admitted him. He met the criteria, homeless plus mentally ill. Um, and over a couple of weeks, PRISM developed what they call an alliance with him. So this is sort of the first approach is creating this alliance with Jacques. However, Jacques refused psychopharmacological treatments and he was del uh, delusional towards another PRISM client that he saw as one of those beings. After Jacques brought a, um, uh, a knife into the program, PRISM chose to contact emergency services and he was brought to the hospital. But the PRISM team, uh, believing that the, the, the alliance is very important, continued to visit Jacques regularly in the hospital uh, daily to maintain this alliance, to keep it strong. Perhaps it's kind of like that trust piece that he was talking about. So after a month, Jacques came back to PRISM and he was no longer exhibiting psychotic symptoms and he had an injectable antipsychotic. And he just start, started to develop a routine at the shelter. Um, and gathered objects that would be useful in his future apartment or that he could use to decorate so little, uh, little items and posters and whatnot. He also connected with a brother he, uh, he had not spoken to for many years, which was facilitated by uh, the staff at PRISM. And so he completed the program and moved to his own apartment, where he, again, where this alliance continues. He continues to be followed and visited by an outreach team. So in terms of continuity, there's sort of two really key components here. One is care. PRISM provides a continuity of care uh, as it is present throughout all the steps from the streets to the independent housing. This, this may involve hospitalization or a return to sleeping on the streets, but that alliance once initiated uh, is not broken. But through ongoing engagement, the PRISM team builds trust. Again, you know, a really key concept that's coming out of our discussion today with the client who is then more likely to stay engaged uh, with care and with the community team afterwards. And there's a narrative uh, component to this. The respite that PRISM provides allows the client to start developing routine and building a narrative surrounding their move into the community. They start to plan and act towards future goals with others. Again, expanding their autobiographical power or their future potential uh, role um, um, in the community, their social bases of self-respect and their people's opportunities in this social context, in this alliance where it's a relationship first um, rather than uh, just the individual having to do, make all the decisions on their own. So this narrative of oneself becomes really important. So this is our sort of our last discussion uh, question section, uh, thinking about PRISM um, and or any ideas you want to talk about today as well. Um, you know, now this is a different, really much different context than perhaps the American context. And we can dwell and think about that if we'd like. So how is the PRISM approach different than other transitional facilities in LA County? Would the PRISM approach work in our own context? Why or why not? And thinking about Jacques becoming Quebecois, what does it mean to become part of a Californian society uh, with your clients? Does this ever become an issue addressed in your own work? And how would Jacques' situation be if he were homeless in LA County? Uh, anyone else have anything uh, they'd like to add? I think there might be some things in the chat. 
Yes, we had a comment uh, okay. talking about the FSP approach. Uh, okay. They said the FSP approach has a flexible across time relationship with the client, emphasis on continuity of care. Um, some mottos as examples are do what it takes and no reject and no reject, no eject. I like that. We have another chat message. Oh, okay. The concept of theater and autobiographical power is helpful to frame the experience between the client and helper. I have used the frame of a structured friend at times when helping other helping staff to simply engage the client. Oh, interesting. I, I wonder if uh, he could type in, maybe he doesn't have audio, what, uh, a little bit more about this idea of the structured friend. That sounds like a really interesting concept. But no, this idea of a structured friendship, I mean, it sort of... Um, sort of blends together a lot of what we were talking about today. Oh, there's something, yeah. Oh, yes. Um, they said the idea that we have a purpose when helping the person, uh, not just a simple friendship. And right. then the PRISM approach can be likened to the FSP program of DMH in LA County. Most of the FSP clients are mentally ill, homeless, and this practice is utilized in the program in the context of community setting. And, um, and identified themselves as a nurse. So thanks oh, for representing the nurses. We love nurses. Great. Yeah, no, the idea of structured friendship, I mean, you know, it has, has its own contextual understanding there, which I think is really, really interesting to have that purpose. Okay, so let's, uh, let's wrap up here. So uh, again, some, some lessons learned, um, and I've learned as much from everyone today um, uh, as I'll, you've, hopefully you've learned from me. Um, moral agency is, is a key aspect of a recovery-centered approach. And moral ag agency requires, again, these three sorts of um, uh, pillars that we, we are borrowing from kind of a, a drama theme, right? The autobiographical power, being the player out of our own life, social basis of self-respect, you know, having others sort of buy into that. Um, uh, and then people to opportunities to expand, you know, your horizons. And your, um, uh, now, one's moral worth uh, or being a good person can differ drastically in different contexts, and and um, and it's good to 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 be aware that you know uh, you know sort of the the role one plays on the street. You know, when you go into institutions, it's going to change um, and be altered or be expanded or new possibilities can emerge and it's good for those who, who recognize that and each of our contexts of course presents a different account of what it means to be a moral agent and you know from from Canada to Texas to San Francisco to different places in LA so uh, thank you so much for listening to uh, to a presentation I hope I hope uh, you know that there's a good sort of translation of knowledge across disciplines from anthropology to, to nursing and to outreach workers and social work and whomever else um, is uh, with us today well yeah thank you everyone um, appreciate it <laughs>